Our sermon text today is Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 50. If you are able now, out of respect for God's word, please rise as I read that to you. This is the inspired word of God. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, speak to us today through your word preached, not because of the preacher, but because of the word, because of the word written, because of the word living and in flesh. Even Christ Jesus, who stands at your right hand even now, making intercession for us. May you be glorified during this time, we pray. In his name. Amen. Well, this passage of scripture that we're looking at today is a rather long section. In fact, any number of preachers probably break it up into smaller sections, maybe two, maybe four even, uh, and, and preach it as various sermons. And uh, I, I actually decided to, to preach them all together, not 
not because I, I want to speed things up and get to the end of Mark quicker. I mean, the sermon, of, uh, the Gospel of Mark is the, the fastest moving gospel of the four anyway. It's, it's, it's fast enough. Uh, it's the shortest. We'll get to the end quick enough, I promise. Uh, but, but because I've noticed as I was studying through this part of the scriptures, one common thread that seemed to be woven through all four of these, as, as I looked, it seemed that the idea of, of pride and humility, the need for humility, the tendency to pride, tends to, to, to be all the way through this. And, and it speaks very much of a certain propensity that we have, doesn't it? For, for each and every one of us is all too prone to pride. As Richard Baxter put it, Oh, what a constant companion. What a tyrannical commander. What a sly and subtle insinuating enemy is the sin of pride. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his classic work, Mere Christianity. He said, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Yes, it is our natural state in this fallen world as fallen creatures that pride should be something that we are prone to. What was the very first thing that happened after the fall in Genesis 3? You recall it, that, that Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 verse 7, their eyes were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Why did they do this? Because all of a the sudden they were concerned about themselves, about how they would be viewed by the other. They were concerned about perception. And pride plays itself out in a lot of different ways. But that's one of the first ones it, looked, it, it does, is, is it causes us to be concerned with appearances. Right? Concerned with appearances. And when we're concerned with appearances, uh, we, we tend to fail to be transparent or vulnerable with others. That's what happened with Adam and Eve, right? When they were existing in their sinless state, they were completely vulnerable with one another, completely open with one another. There was nothing hidden one from another, but in their sin, they began to hide themselves from one another and from God even more tragically. We see the same thing happening here in verse 30. It says they, they went on uh, passed through Galilee. Jesus didn't want them to know, was teaching, uh, didn't want anyone to know. That he was teaching them about how the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. It's not the first time we've heard Jesus say this. You'll recall in Mark 8, he said very similar things, right? Beginning in verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by elders so forth and so on, and after three days, rise again. And he said it very plainly there. He says it very plainly once again. You recall what happened on that last occasion, right, when Jesus talked about how he was going to have to die, 
And, and Peter spoke up on that occasion. You'll recall he rebuked Jesus. Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Right? And so here we are again in verse 32. A once again, do not understand the saying. I think this is because their understanding of the Messiah was so radically different than what he actually was going to be. Right? Jesus knew the truth of the Messiah, what he was to be, what he, what he actually was, and, and what his role and his function and how things would play out. But, but they didn't expect those things. And it was so radically at odds with what they expected that, that even as he taught very plainly, they could not understand. Right? It's almost as if I said to you, I said something like, uh, uh, you know, I hate when I'm wet. Let's go jump in the pool. You're like, wait, that, that doesn't make any sense. You must mean something different by let's go jump in the pool than what I think you mean. Right? Because that, that just, I, I don't understand. Right? That's where they were. The things he was saying didn't make any sense. A suffering Messiah, a dying Messiah, this makes no sense. We see in verse 32, they were afraid to ask him. Why were they afraid to ask him? Well, it was right that they weren't willing to rebuke him like Peter had, but they should have been willing to ask him, shouldn't they? But they didn't ask him as we often do not ask questions because they didn't want to look dumb, right? Isn't that the way it is? Don't, doesn't that keep us from asking so many questions? We're afraid of the appearances. People will think we're not very bright. They'll think we maybe weren't uh, up to snuff, right? Because we, we didn't get it. We didn't understand it. And so we, we don't want to ask a question, right? Because if we ask a question, then people will realize how limited we are in our knowledge. But the reality is when we fail to ask a question, we fail to learn, right? The old saying says the only dumb question is the one that goes unasked. Right? And there's a real truth to that. They should have been willing to come to Jesus and ask questions. We should always be willing to ask questions of God, especially if we're looking for information, for wisdom, right? If we're looking for God to, to teach us. He, he longs to teach us. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. You notice he says, you know, when you go to God and you ask him a question, God doesn't say, that's a dumb question. He doesn't say, I've taught you five times before. No, he gives without reproach. Generously, Paul, he wants to give wisdom. He wants to teach us. He wants us to learn. But this is not what they did. They don't want to look dumb. They don't want to admit their shortcoming in terms of understanding. Uh, they, they, they want to keep up appearances, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we, we got you, Jesus. We, we hear what you're saying. We're tracking with you. We, we, we got it. Don't be like that. Let's not be like that. Let's, let's when we have a question, ask a question. Let's, let's humble ourselves. Be willing to ask a question. You know what? If, if you have a question about something I preach, for instance, you know, come ask me. Call me up. Ask me as you're leaving. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be honest with you. Hopefully, hopefully the 
the preacher here was, is listening to himself, and he won't feel like he has to make something up on the spot when he doesn't have a good answer for you, you know, and it, you know, because, you know, he has to keep up appearances, right? Uh, hopefully, uh, if he doesn't have an answer, he'll say, okay, you know what, I don't know. That's a really good question. Let's look into that together. You know, I'll, I'll go do some research. Let's pray about it. I'll give you a call later in the week. We'll talk about it. Hopefully that's what the preacher will do, and hopefully that's what you will do. It is a danger, though, for pastors. You know, pastors can get into this kind of pride, this, this lack of humility. Uh, you know, there's even a term for it. I like this term. I, I heard somebody make once. You know, when, when pastors get together, they tend to be kind of evangelistic. Uh, you know, it's not, not evangelistic, evangelistic, you know, because they stretch the truth, you know, like, you know, well, how many people are in your church? Well, yeah, we've got, uh, you know, you know, and you're thinking, well, you know, we have about 75 people at worship. You know, well, that, that becomes, you know, well, about 100, right? You know, it's, it's about 100, you know, you know, uh, you know, or, you know, if you had, you know, 125, you know, well, that, that's, you know, you know, pushing 200, you know, uh, you know, it's, Kind of things like that, you know, or, you know, well, hey, you know, last week we had three new families show up at church. You know, you don't mention that they're actually, you know, actually your family that were out, in from out of town for a kid's birthday or something like that, you know. Things like that, you know. You, you stretch the truth a little bit because you have to keep up appearances. We should not be that way. Pastors of all shouldn't be that way, but neither should others that's how the disciples were. They were prone to this kind of pride, prone to this concerned with appearances. So they, they come to Capernaum, verse 33 tells us, and when they were in the house, not a house, it says the house. So we, we understand this to be probably Peter's house, which was kind of their headquarters in Capernaum. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? And verse 34 says, but they kept silent. They didn't answer him. For on the way they had argued about, or argued with one another about who was the greatest. You see what happened there? They're having this discussion about who was the greatest. And they knew that was wrong. They knew that that was a prideful thing to be discussing. How do we know that? Because when he asked them, what were you discussing? It says they just remained silent. They didn't want to tell him. They didn't want to let him know what they'd been talking about. Right? They wanted to keep up appearances. We shouldn't hide our sins from Jesus. <laughs> First of all, because it doesn't work, right? Jesus already knew what they were talking about. He wasn't asking them to gain information. He was asking them to give them the opportunity to confess their sins, right? It's interesting, the Apostle John says later on in 1 John 1, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, James says in James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Right? We should confess our sins to Jesus for sure, to God. We should go before him and confess our sins, but also confess our sins to one another. Have somebody that you can confess your sins to. Do you have somebody that you can confess your sins to? Do you have somebody that you have that kind of relationship where you can sit down and say, you know what, I've, I've really been struggling with these things. I've, I've been dealing with some issues, and, and, and I, just, I just need to let you know about that. I need to confess that. Not because that other person makes, 
you know, that they're, they have some superpower or something or, or whatever. But, but just the reality that, that it's easier if you have somebody who's praying for you, supporting you in your struggle. It, it helps strengthen you and encourage you. And when we confess our sins to Jesus, we have him to pray for us. Right? Hebrews 7 tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He died for our sins, but the gospel does not end there. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God even now. He makes intercession for us now. Isn't that a wonderful thought, that Jesus is praying for you right now? I, I can't even remember who it was that said this. I, I actually, I, I think it was Robert Murray McShane. It just came to me now. I, he once said, if I heard Jesus praying in the other room for me, it would make all the difference in the world. So, but then he went on to say, but it should make no difference. Because he is praying for me. Right? He is praying for me. Jesus the Christ is praying for you right now. That should strengthen us. That should embolden us. That should cause us to walk in faithfulness. Strengthened by the gospel of grace. Sure that our identity rests not in our faithfulness, not in our goodness, not in our actions, but rather in his. And confident that his love for us steadfast. There's a second way that our pride plays out. And that is sometimes we just like to be glory hogs, right? We, we like to have, that's, that's a theological term, I think, glory hogs. You know, I, we like to have all the glory for ourselves, don't we? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we like to get the credit, we like to get the glory, we like it the, the light to shine on us. The, the shorter catechism teaches us that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But in reality, as we live out our lives, we live them in such a way that, that our chief end is to glorify ourselves and enjoy that glory. Right? In short, we're more concerned with us than we are with the kingdom of God. We see a couple examples of that in today's passage. First was back in verse 34, which we've already touched on. They, they argued with one another about who was the greatest, right? I, I want to be the one standing on the top platform, right? I want to be the one with the biggest trophy. I want to be the one with the medal, you know, the gold medal on my, uh, around my neck. I want to be the one who gets the credit, who's universally recognized as being the best. That's what, that's what we want we long for that right we 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 want to be muhammad ali i am the greatest of all time right that's where they were verse 38 another example we see it here john says to jesus remember john is is the brother of james and back in mark 3 jesus had called them the the uh Gave them the name Bonergus, which means sons of thunder. Right? They had bombastic personality. We think of Peter in that way. We don't always think of James and John in that way, but, but apparently they were no shrinking violets either. And John says to him, Teacher, in verse 38, you can almost 
you, you can, even as we just move into it here, you can, you can almost hear the pride welling up in his voice here. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Don't worry, Jesus. We tried to stop him. Okay? We just wanted to let you know. You know, it, it's like he's, he's like the kid, you know, like, hey, hey, uh, you know, mom, I, I just wanted you to know that, you know, you know, we, we, were, we were here alone and he tried to take an extra cookie, but I stopped him, you know, right? You know, it's like, you know, just, you know, we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. It's interesting. He, he doesn't say because he was not following you. <laughs> no, because he was not following us. He's not one of us, right? He, he's, not, he's not one of the in crowd. He's not, he's not one of the 12 important guys that you picked, Jesus, right? The guys that are the most important people, the, the ones that had this argument over who's the greatest, because clearly we must be the greatest, so one of us is going to be the greatest of the greatest. Right, and, and here's this guy who's just off humbly serving, you know, you know, casting out demons in your name, and we can't have that. Now, now, I think it's important for us to remember that just recently, it's not been that many verses ago, back in verse 18, that the disciples themselves were having trouble casting out demons, right? And now here comes this other guy who's doing it, right? And and on top of that, we've seen just in verse 34 with the whole who is the greatest thing that they do have a propensity toward rivalry right so it's easy to see how jealous they might have been of this man and how that might have fed into them feeling like he is robbing them of glory that ought to be theirs but jesus says don't stop him come on guys what are you doing don't stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me for the one who's not against us is for us he's this man's furthering the kingdom of god we should be committed to this it's what we claim we're all about right and we as a church it's the same right that's why we're part of a denomination at least part of why we're part of a denomination right we're not going at this as lone rangers doing our own thing Right? We're part of a greater body, a, a bigger thing, right? And we want to serve Christ alongside others. We want to be a part of the building of the kingdom of God, but we don't care whether it happens here or there, whether we're the ones doing it or somebody else is doing it. Right? We, we just want the kingdom of God to be built up in Christ's name. We don't need to do the, all the work. We don't need to get all the glory. That's why we actually will support some missionaries at times that, that maybe don't agree with us on every last point. Right? We have a group of uh, folks in Kenya that we support. They're, they're Baptists. We're not Baptists. Right? But, but we support them because it's a ministry that's been wildly successful. It's done wonderful things. There's a pastor's college where reformed pastors are trained. There's, there's a uh, reformed churches being being planted throughout that region. There's a children's home that has taken care of children, uh, their education, providing them food, providing them with clean water to drink. Do we agree with their view on baptism? No. But do we rejoice that the kingdom of God is moving forward in their midst through their work? Yes. And we long to be a part of that.
But Jesus says in verse 41, Truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Finally, a third way in which pride plays its way out, we have worldly standards of importance. We judge things by the wrong standards, right? We, we, we see it in the Beatitudes that we read together earlier, right? Al even made the point about being countercultural, right? The, the Beatitudes give us a look at kingdom values, right? And, and what life should look like, what, what, what things are important in the kingdom, what, what is blessed by God. And we read them and we, we think that they're upside down. But the reality is we're the ones who are upside down, right? We are upside down and, and, and we, we let pride play itself out in these things. But Proverbs 29 tells us that one's pride will bring him low. But he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that? I mean, we, we say things like that. We say it's more blessed to give than to receive. But boy, I really like receiving. <laughs> right? Do we really believe that by having a lowly spirit, we will obtain the honor we so hunger for? Remember, Mark 8 through 10 is a section of Scripture bookended by two healings of blind men, right? And in between, we're getting a picture right here of what it looks like to see Jesus more clearly, to see who he is, to have our view of him corrected. Remember, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, in each of these, Jesus says that he will have to die. He is the suffering servant. He is the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for the many. He who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so there are implications to this for our discipleship. If we are followers of Christ Jesus, this changes the way we must live our lives as well. We, we no longer can live our lives according to the world's standards, according to the world's priorities. In a world that is all about me, we need to be marked by humility. Tim Keller liked to say, and I think he got this from C.S. Lewis, this, this helpful thing about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Right? You get the idea, the contrast there? Right? Sometimes we think humility is thinking, I'm terrible, I'm horrible, I'm miserable, I'm no good, I, 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 I. You notice what I'm talking about here is me, 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 me. Right? How humble is that? Not humble at all. Right? It's still very inward focused. Right? The idea of being humble is to think of yourself less, to not reflexively think about how things impact you. And it's only the gospel of grace that can cause us to do this. And so Jesus sits down amongst them in verse 35, says, if anyone would be first, he must be last 
and a servant of all. He took a child to illustrate this. And it's really interesting. Do, do you know who this, children wa- who this child was? It's interesting. Do you, no, you don't. He's totally anonymous. Right? He's totally anonymous. And, and, and beyond being totally anonymous, we need to consider how unimportant children were thought to be in that culture at that time. Children were the essence of the lowest status. Right? We talk about sometimes, well, children are to be seen and not heard. Right? In, that mind, in that era, in that time, in that culture, children were to be not seen and not heard. Right? They were just an afterthought. Right? We sometimes structure our lives around the kids. Right? You know, well, we've got these 73 activities we need to take the kids to, so we'll put those down on the calendar first and build the calendar around that. That was not the way it was there. They did not have the, the sentimentality for children that, that we have. Children often died, uh, they had a much higher death rate, uh, and in the Greco-Roman world at the time, uh, the most common family was, was with one child, right? A male child would be the most common. Uh, there were often uh, abortions attempted. There were often, uh, even for children who were born, especially if it was a, a girl, uh, infanticide, where, where the children were just left on the trash heap, left there to die. Sometimes children sold into slavery, you know, because, you know, I don't want another child and, you know, I can make a couple, couple bucks this way. That's not the way we think about it, but it was the way it was thought of there. Now, in the Jewish culture, it was a little different, not quite as bad, but still very low standing for children. And so Jesus takes this anonymous, unimportant little child, and he puts his arms around him, says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Who cares about the little kid? Jesus says, I do. I do. Not because the child is important in and of himself, but because I come and I care for those who are unimportant in the world's eyes. I love those who are unimportant in the world's eyes. I love not those who can do a lot for me, but those for whom I can do a lot. We should be the same. Culture says, that person can't do anything for me. They don't matter. Jesus says, oh yes, they matter to me. And so the church, the people of God, should be like-minded, right? We're like a body, his body. He's saying here that within the body, we might tend to think of certain people as being important, right? You know, maybe it's the pastor, maybe it's elders, maybe it's the person who's been a member the longest amount of time. Maybe it's uh, the person who gives a lot of money to the church. Whatever it is that causes us to think, well, that person's important, right? Jesus says that's not the way we need to think about the big and important. Jesus is saying these little ones who believe in me are just as important, if not more important. And he alludes some more here to these other parts of the body. In verse 43 through 48, he talks about the, the hand. And if it, it, he, he's speaking metaphorically here now. And, and it's, 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 it's uh, interesting what he says. He says, the hand causes you to sin. Cut it off. Now, we all know it's not your hand that causes you to sin. It's not your eye, right? It, it, it's, it's your heart. But, but he says here, for purposes of the analogy, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter in life crippled than to go with two hands into hell, right? And the same with your foot. And the same with your eyes. 
right? It's better for you to lose them than to lose your soul, he says. And in the same way in the church, he's saying the, the most important person, if they are standing in the way, however you judge the most important person, if they are standing in the way of the least important person knowing Jesus, you should cut them off. You should get rid of them. They should be put out. You see what, what he's talking about here? It's actually a call to church discipline. Not for sexual sin, not for financial sin, but for pride. For pride. So now we have this difficult situation, right? Because on the one hand, we've said, all of us struggle with pride. And on the other hand, he's saying, pride is worth church, worthy of church discipline. Being put out for it. Where our only hope is to be made a new person. It can only happen through Christ Jesus the Lord. As his spirit dwells within us and through us. For everyone will be salted with fire, he says. Uh, and, and salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? It's echoing what we read in the Beatitudes earlier in our Unison Scripture reading. Have salt in yourselves and, and be at peace with one another, right? This is all, in the end, about unity or humility, he says. In Romans 12, Paul writes, If possible, as so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Right? He doesn't say, so far as it is able to be argued by you that the other person was really at fault. No. So far as it depends on you, you do whatever you can. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. I hope and pray that you know that care today, that you know that Jesus cares for you so much that he died for your sins, that he loves you, not because of what you can do for him, but because of his grace and his mercy. And because he cares for you, because he loves you, you don't need to put on airs. You don't need to try to keep up appearances. You don't need to, to, to try to be something that you're not. Simply focus on Jesus instead of on yourself. See him as he truly is. And be transformed. For it's seeing Jesus as he is that makes all the difference. Would you pray with me? Lord, we just pray that you would help us to do that now. Help us to see you, Lord, and be humbled. Remove the pride from our hearts and replace it with a gospel-centered christ exalting humility. May we know that we are saved by grace alone through faith, that the working of your spirit in our hearts is due solely to you, not to anything we have done. Grow us. Make us more like Christ Jesus. For we ask it in his name.